Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Hello, everyone. Today, we've got Russ White, Ulrich Spidel, and Yap. Russ, hello. Hey, George. How are you this morning? I don't think it's morning for you, is it? It's afternoon or evening uh, or midnight. It's or evening. It's midnight. It's, it's, it's evening, but it's okay. It's a pleasant <laughs> evening. Russ, can you just give people some context? Who are you? I, I am just a routing geek. Nothing else. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm, no, I've never written any books, done nothing, just. So you're a routing person <laughs> and a podcaster and I'll an just, author. I'll just say that. <laughs> Ulrich, welcome. Thanks, George. Um, well, who am I? Um, I'm my, uh, uh, formerly speaking, a senior lecturer in computer science at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Um, and uh, in terms of my my background, um, I've done a little bit of everything and a lot of nothing, um, <laughs> as people might say. Um, so I've been interested in communications for a long time and been working on various aspects uh, of it all, all over the protocol stack and uh, and uh, things around and um, uh, more lately on satellite communications. And Yarp, welcome Yark Ackerhaus. Uh, hi, uh, yes, I'm Jaap Akkerhuis uh, from Amsterdam, and uh, I'm actually dabbling in the internet for the last 40 years or so in various positions. And uh, now I'm uh, still kind of working for uh, NLNet Labs, and guys uh, DNS uh, stuff and security uh, routing. Things like that. I do that two days a week, but still trying to retire, although it doesn't work out that well. And, uh, <laughs> so that's because there's always more stuff to stuff in DNS. Now, yeah, you're, you're hiding, you're hiding your light under a bushel, as we say, because I have visited your office at NLNet Labs, and up on the top of the bookcases you have antenna that appear to have been made by stripping wiring flex out of the wall and wrapping it around cardboard boxes. You are a radio astronomer, aren't you? Well, kind of. It's uh, How that happened is that I was... Uh, I mean, I've got friends in California and they run the solar satellite. They're, as they say, they're, running, uh, they're astronomer in the day shift. Uh, because they look at the sun, and uh, one of the uh, Debbie Sure, you probably know her from the software tools stage years ago, uh, had some problems getting some stuff working, and she asked me to help out, and that's how I got involved into all this uh, solar business the last 20 years or so. So, this is specifically solar astronomy. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, specifically, uh, yes, it's, uh, and this is, uh, uh, this has to do with what they call solar weather. I mean, to predict, uh, to predict, uh, the, predict the sun wind, which is, uh, blasting in the earth and other parts of the, uh, 
of the universe. So I was stupid enough to write a blog piece called Good Day Sunshine. I just couldn't go past the Beatles song. And here we are. And I've called this one on my side. Here comes the sunspot because I couldn't go past the Beatles thing. The point was that I was really intrigued by a post I saw back in May that was from the US National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, who run a space weather prediction center. And I like to imagine someone like Bill Murray floating in front of a green screen showing signs as the solar wind approaches us. But solar weather is actually a really serious thing, isn't it? Yes, kind of. It is, uh, it's also surrounded by myths. I mean, people are, uh, I mean, uh, people make a lot of fuss about solar weather and uh, and referring to the carrots on the incident as being oh, oh, oh the world's going to end if it happens again but yes it, but being so much unpredictable for the real uh, exciting explosions uh, I mean, people tend to overestimate what's happen and then also to uh, you know to, because it's so random and they tend to make a lot of uh, noise I mean, it must be the solar weather I mean, climate change and stuff like that comes into mind where people are exaggerating uh, the influence but yes so, so maybe, is, we ought to, maybe we ought to like back off and talk about just for a second like what we're talking about right like what impact will the solar storm have because we're talking about how bad it is. It could be or may not be, but like, what does it cause like, for people who don't know? Well, what's happening is that the, uh, the sun is uh, uh, kind of a violent place to be there. But uh, it, it, it's this, uh, and what happens is that uh, often there are what they call coronal mass infection. Suddenly it spews out a lot of. Uh, uh, the ions and uh, other stuff, gamma rays and so on. And uh, most of that is actually, you don't notice on Earth uh, because the magnetic field on Earth actually sidetracks the stuff. But you see uh, at the poles, what you see as, uh, how is that called, auroras in the northern and southern poles. That's part of it. But sometimes these things, explosives are very, they are very uh, heavy and uh, then you get an enormous impulse of uh, uh, x-rays uh, hitting yurts or parts of yurts or missing yurts. I mean, it depends on where it goes to because it's actually pretty pretty local. And it's always followed by a stream of, for a couple of days, what they call uh, the, the sun flares, which is very high sun with ions, and that can cause some interesting disturbance on radio traffic and uh, also on the electrical grids. And there's a lot of weird things happening there. It has to do with uh, how the ionosphere and especially the E and F layers are behaving. And uh, so it's kind of get influenced by this. 
So Ulrich, you also wrote about this on an AP Nick blog, and you observed that there's a differential effect on different orbital planes of satellites. So we're kind of mentally now dividing them up into Geo, Mio, and Leo. And there would be a general sense, the lower is safer. But to some extent, all of these systems are potentially at risk from this kind of event? Um, short answer, yes, because all of them pretty much run outside the atmosphere, and the atmosphere is where a lot of the um, actual attenuation um, happens and where a lot of the charged particles that the sun throws our way uh, get absorbed. Um, but let me step back for a moment. If we look back at where the first sort of um, incidences of um, uh, technical interference um, by solar winds, um, charged particles, um, uh, CMIs and so on were uh, on uh, installations on Earth uh, were observed, we're going really back to the 1950s and beforehand. And when we look at, for example, the impact on, com uh, on communication systems at the time, uh, we're looking mostly at things like telegraphs and uh, overland telephone lines. And if you go back to these days, you're looking at very, very, very long wires. Um, so telegraph wires strung along literally telegraph poles, um, you know, same with telephone wires and this sort of thing. And, um, you know, obviously a lot of, um, you know, radio communication sort of from about, um, the, you know, the first third of uh, the 20th century onwards. And when you look at uh, look back at that time, you see that all of those technologies are in a particular place where they're particularly vulnerable um, uh, to charged particles. So, for example, as, uh, you know, Yap already mentioned, um, uh, we're uh, you know we're going back, um, you know, say for example, Yap just says on the chat here, <laughs> actually it goes back to the 1850s. This is where it was first sort of shown uh, shown to exist, but where we first had the really sort of bad impact on uh, you know bad impact on communications that came along with the communication technology, obviously, um, or, or the widespread use of communication technology, and also with the widespread deployment of power grids. And we didn't have that all that much in the in, in the 1850s. So it was really the mid you know 20th century when when it really took off where when it when it started to badly hurt people. Um, and the, 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 there's really two common factors. One common factor is extremely long wires. And um, the thing with the long wires is basically, you know, the longer you make a wire, the more when it's exposed to a stream of charged particles, um, the more current you get induced into the wire. And, uh, you know, the, the, and, and that that's really proportional to the amount of damage you can do at the, at the end of the wire where your your um, uh, communications equipment sits. You know, similarly with uh, power grids, um, the uh, longer the power grids are, the, the more interconnected they are, you know, the, the more they run, uh, you know, overground, uh, the more they're susceptible uh, to problems. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're then going into radio communications, again, in that day and age, a lot of it was on shortwave, um, and again, uh, there you're aligned on stuff like, um, you know, propagation in the ionosphere. And, you know, again, that's very, very susceptible to what's happening on the sun. If you fast forward to today, now a lot of our long range communication networks are actually fiber based. Um, that's pretty much immune to, um, you know, any kind of solar interference. Uh, you're looking also at you know, maybe problems with, you know, say, end equipment. But again, a lot of that's no longer transformer-based. It's now switch mode power supply-based. Um, so again, this is a more robust, you know, kind, kind of system that's 
not as susceptible to uh, uh, to interference. You know, computers basically live off very, very short connections and very short wires. So again, we've moved the opposite way here a little bit. And um, so, um, so, so we're not as susceptible as we used to be, um, but power grids are to an extent still an issue. Also countries, for example, that still run a lot of uh, overhead power grid, especially at a local level, they tend to be a bit more susceptible. Um, you know, for example, I've recently visited Japan where uh, overhead power lines are still extremely common. Um, even in the, you know in the big cities, that's a bit more susceptible than you know, say the country I'm, you're, you're currently talking to me, and I'm happen, happen to be in Germany at the moment, where there's very very little uh, uh, you know overland uh, you know uh, uh, in the local distribution network, very little overland um, uh, uh, you know power lines. Most of it's undergrounded here. So the length of the wire also impacts the frequency, right? And because longer. Uh, lower frequencies are actually pick the frequency it picks up, right? Or is that not? I would think that the lower the frequency or the longer the wire, the lower the frequency it picks up, long, lower frequencies carry farther. Therefore, the power is more. Whereas with shorter wires, you know, you're, it's, just a, it's just a wavelength thing. No, no, doesn't really matter. I mean, okay. the, the real problem is caused by uh, potential differences between parts of the uh, grid, uh, and that causes a lot of what in Dutch called blind uh, electricity things, and that actually is very can be very violent. I mean, if you remember the power grid going down it's northwest uh, northeast uh, America and nobody knew what really happened but probably has been uh, a local disturbance of uh, exactly that phenomenon. So that was 89? Yeah, yeah that, yes, that's a famous one. But it happens all the time in 2003 or 4 I forget which date uh, parts of the power grid of South Africa blew up because the transformer couldn't handle the, the extra currents. And things like that are very, I mean, do happen a lot. And, uh, I mean, even in big power grids like the European power grids, I, mean, I do remember disturbance in the power grid, which happens 12 years ago, something like that. It was kind of interesting because one of the main feats in Germany was switched off for uh, maintenance, and uh, the other one was it was taken off by the other by another one. But they were also moving a, a ship on the Elbe, and uh, they didn't realize that they would hit the big power line, the Hamid KP power line, and so that. So out went uh, the backup grid. Uh, that caused kind of a weird uh, ripple effect on uh, Europe because these things are combined together because you, know, you want to have the phase and the frequency everywhere the same. And the same. Yeah. And the ripple went up, it was felt up into uh, Morocco. But that brings you to what something what uh, uh, with all the also mentioned, I mean, having uh, to f having uh, isolation of various parts of the grid actually helps in this case because uh, you won't uh, 
you don't have these problems then. The same with uh, the fiber optics uh, do help as well. Although fiber cables also have power uh, next to it to have the amplifiers on the ocean. Give power, so it doesn't really always help. But fragmentation helps in this case of the grid, of the dependencies. But it just happens all the time. Actually, just today I saw a study published where they look at the differences of the ionosphere layers, because they're multi layers. Now, in protocol and what influence it has on the power grid and uh, what, uh, how they have to defend it against this. I mean, that's to do not only with the power grid or the long lines itself, also has to do with the geological, uh, uh, the earth itself. When there's a lot of uh, iron in the earth, things are different because it's not only the iron, ionization, it's also uh, geomagnetic storms which is caused by this because when all the ice, what happens is the magnetic field of the earth is actually being pushed away a bit and that means moving uh, magnetic fields always cause problems in other things like electric fields. So, so spacecraft, there's two qualities here that would be concerning. There's the sort of more physical aspect this stuff presumably causes arcing in technology that's up there which means there's potential for it to actually interfere with computer systems or with solar cell arrays or with antenna systems that must surely shorten the life of the devices yeah that is a problem that's why all these chips are so much hardened but there are two things one is the big cameras and other x-rays which are actually instantaneously these are very hard to predict and if you can predict them you tell the people in the international space uh, to sit behind the water uh, tank so they don't get a hit that much i mean this is short-lived. And the ionization, that's what when people, you often see it coming. I mean, uh, the speed it goes is 500 to 1500 kilometers uh, per second. So the dish, you see that coming, the daisy probe. And what you can do is turn off some of the stuff, uh, move the antennas away from uh, where it comes. I mean, of course, if it really hits the earth, we might go everywhere, these things. Uh, and, uh, and it can miss the earth as well. So you can do uh, preventive uh, things. But yes, it can blow up uh, satellites because it at least disturbance uh, when it passes for a couple of days. So Ulrich, does it also have an influence on the drag aspects of the satellites does it perturb their orbits and materially affect their duration in space um not really um mostly what you're getting is you're getting these streams of charged particles but it's, it's not like it's a huge density it's not like somebody's throwing a you know bucket of water or something like this with a 
a lot of marketing. So not, 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 not really. Um, what you know, what you get obviously is um, you get, for example, uh, if you have to reorient a spacecraft in order to position it, so it's going to weather a storm like this. This is going to have an effect on the fuel, uh, you know, balance, uh, you know, on the spacecraft, and so it, it, it does shorten the lifetime from that perspective because it means that uh, it can't do, uh, you know, station keeping for quite as long into its life if you're always having to reposition it in order to uh, dodge uh, solar storms. So that has a bit of an effect, but um, that's that's relatively minor. So it's solar events. We're observing the sun all the time. We understand the mechanics here. So we have lead time, which means we can adjust certain behaviors, but then there's the non-deterministic aspects of how it interacts with the earth and the effect it has on systems. It's a warning but with no strong ability to state exactly what it's going to do. I, I get that it's not exactly game over at 11 o'clock. I can understand you're saying that it's been bigged up into some idea of a massive worldwide problem if we had a huge CME event. But nonetheless, it doesn't exactly sound good. No, of no, course it doesn't exactly sound good. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, as uh, uh, you know, Yaps pointed out, the um, uh, you know the, the the big problem area still tends to be power grids and you know anything that gets fed with power. Now, you know, again, we're in a much much better position there than we used to be. You know, say fifty years ago when everything was directly fed, you know, from transformers. Now we tend to have things like UPSs and you know, other other devices sort of in the system. And all that, all of that sort of tends to add to resilience. Um, the, the other thing, uh, you know, of course, um, that, uh, you know, we're at least in parts of the world, you know, also dealing with is we're having in some places very, very large, uh, you know, large long power grids where there's a, you know, a lot of wire between the place where the power is generated and the place where the power is being used. Um, so all of that basically makes it rather difficult yeah. to regulate uh, generation you know, versus use. Um, then in other places, you know, uh, you know, it's fairly close by. And, you know, for example, the uh, South African, uh, you know, uh, example is one of those where a lot of generation is actually happening far away from the from the big cities. Um, basically, you know, the power stations tend to be when the, where the coal mines are. Um, and uh, the uh, consumption tends to be where the gold mines are. <laughs> um, uh, so sort of uh, flippantly speaking. Um but um, you know, in terms of communication systems, uh, you know, you know, it's, it's really mostly satellites that tend to be you know affected by it, and um, you're literally looking at a bit of an avalanche effect there. You're sort of seeing the avalanche, you know, being you know triggered up the hill somewhere, and you know it's coming, and you know it's gonna uh, you know shower some snow on you, but you can't really tell how much snow it's gonna be, and you know what what exactly it's gonna hit because that's gonna you know, uh, going to depend on what it's going to hit when it's going to get down. And, um, uh, you know, similarly, we're seeing, you know, those eruptions on the sun, that's that's the observable, but we have nothing really in between that can tell us, you know, how, you know, how many particles were released and, you know, how it's all, uh, you know, how it's all behaving. And so we kind of have to wait until it gets here until we can, you know, tell <laughs> what the impact is. But by that point, it's a bit too late. <laughs> so the situation we've had in Australia that is not solar event related is that we had storm perturbation of the long line grid that connects our states together and we had isolating I 
I don't know what the jargon is in Europe, but here it's called islanding. So some of the states had to deliberately cut because they couldn't maintain frequency stability and they were islanded. And then with loss of transmission systems, they'd been depending on interstate connectors to provide the resiliency. So in effect, it was the we can protect against one fault, but not two problem. But then a third fault emerges. We call it black start. Powering up a power network from nothing, you need electricity to excite components of the mechanism to make it possible to make electricity. And there are scheduled suppliers of black start capability who are meant to be able to turn on. It's kind of a bit like when you have a diesel generator of spare power in your data center. And the thing is, if you don't turn the diesel system over every now and then, it doesn't start when you want it to. And that is precisely what happened to us. The gas turbine black start facilities in South Australia didn't work. They weren't able to fulfill the obligations. So this power network thing is kind of a weird combination of cascading effects. It's got qualities that it could be a very small break and it could have quite wide ranging consequence if it hits enough pieces and you start to get things stacking up together as a system-wide effect. I know that is to some extent catastrophizing. So I get that this is to all intents and purposes a hypothetical more than a current problem. But I can't help thinking if there was a sufficiently large event, we might be surprised at how long it took us to come back from it. Yeah. Well, I think we're looking at like three different systems or four different systems here, right? The one is electrical, right? Because electrical is, has a lot of exposed wiring, um, although a lot of it's buried now and would be less acceptable, but still, there's still a lot of overhead wiring in the world. And in houses, we can't forget that in houses and stuff, that wiring is not necessarily going to be perfect uh, as far as protected from these kinds of storms. The second would be satellite systems and satellite communications. The third would be just straight comm systems, right? Just like long wire Ethernet sitting in building walls and stuff like that. So you have like three or four different things here that all interact. And if you get a big enough storm, you don't really know what that interaction is going to look like until it actually happens, right? You, you can postulate, oh, well, this system will do this and that's it, but they interact. You know, they're, they're not independent things as much as we like to think they are. Yeah, I mean, there's a fourth system in the work as well. Because people, oh, radio amateur says, oh, we can use the radio for emergency. Well, if it's really a heavy storm, the radio stops working as well because yeah. of disturbance in the ionosphere, at least locally. I mean, where locally means size of a fence or something like that. You know, there's a, the difference between how big these things are. Because something like the Carrington effect actually happened again in the uh, 1920s uh, in Mongolia, but there were no telegraphs there. It was no power grade. And so only in hindsight you can reconstruct that there was a big storm there, but it was nothing that was uh, breaking down. So there more things going on than people know and can measure. But that's why you have to know our satellites. I mean, looking at this uh, and looking at the strings of ions and the things in the sun and other things. And people from uh, 
in the solar astronomy try to predict when and where these explosions will take place and uh, whether they go beyond uh, the corona or fall back again. So this is, and that's hard. So do they relate to sunspot cycles? They do relate to sunspot cycles. The chance of uh, getting uh, uh, CMEs are actually uh, followed some spot cycle of 11 years. And uh, so we are now reaching a maximum of two years. And you see that there are more and more uh, uh, things and uh, more and more sun weather uh, events. I mean, let's say two weeks ago, actually in Colorado, you could see auroras, which you normally don't see. And I saw this winter in, uh, here in the Netherlands, so fake auroras, which are not, which you don't normally see. And, uh, but, uh, so, yes, we are, to, they predict that, uh, uh, the next, uh, Maximum is around two years, but how heavy that will be, nobody knows because they actually predicted it would be weaker than last uh, cycle, but it seems to be actually less weaker than they thought it was. So, so, so we're two years off the predicted peak in an eleven-year cycle. Yeah, yeah, just we are just at the point of starting to achieve maximum saturation we have ever had in low Earth orbit of many, many devices. We have Starlink, we have the European Communities Initiative, we have Baidu, we have growth in the medium orbit because we have the um, the second tier of Starlink that are meant to be providing the inter-satellite connectivity grid to provide satellite to satellite rather than just bent pipe. We might have normal levels of geo, and we probably have less dependency on geo, but that's treating this as a comms problem. We're actually really dependent on remote sensing these days. Yeah. It's important. But you have to realize that those Leo satellites are actually moving much, uh, far, much faster away. These, uh, uh, these storms are pretty local. They don't uh, go over the whole Earth, so not... All parts of the kit will be uh, hit at the same time. I mean, unless it's getting really gigantic, but then probably nothing will help. But, uh... but for some duration, there would be an isolation point in the Earth's magnetic geomagnetic system as satellites move through it. People would be experiencing disconnection if they depended on that technology. Yeah, but that's what happens all the time. I mean, uh, uh, radio silence happening uh, on a regular basis because of uh, solar winds and which people don't really realize. But that's uh, happening all the time. And uh, there is, uh, what I always say, there's no reason for panic. And uh, that's, uh, I mean, well. Muted panic. I might, I might drink my tea a little bit quicker. <laughs> yeah. In fact, talking about you know talking about um, catastrophic events and drinking tea, um, this reminds me of a situation that we had in Auckland oh, around about twenty years ago. 
um, when our entire central business district uh, was without power for quite a few uh, weeks. And it also yeah. reminds me of what you said, uh, George, about sort of, uh, you know, various capacities sort of falling over like dominoes. And uh, on that particular occasion, the uh, local uh, grid company had a um, number of lines running into the CBD. Uh, two or three of them were out of uh, out for maintenance. And um, then there was another one that got damaged by a digger. And um, then they had about three of them left, and the damage to um, one of uh, one of those um, was subsequently then done uh, by their own communications department um, because. They, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about their, their, their media people because uh, they sort of uh, uh, decided that a good way of uh, saving energy was to tell people to um, turn off their PCs and have a cuppa instead. But of course, um, uh, what uh, you do in New Zealand when you have a cuppa, you go to your uh, zip device, which uh, Russ and uh, Yap probably won't know about, but it's essentially an electric hot water heater that sits on the wall. So uh, you're whatever, 100, 150 uh, watt of power consumption of your PC was immediately re immediately replaced with about two thousand watts, um, uh, you know, running <laughs> running off your wall, um, and so as a result of that, people all, all made themselves a cuppa uh, very very urgently, and they managed to blow the next cable, and so they had only one or two cables uh, left going into the central business district, and at that point, it was basically load shedding and powering essential services only. Um, the uh, university where I work, uh, you know, has its biggest campus in the, in the central city the entire campus bar the computer center were shut down and everybody uh, was told to go home and work from home and i was working at a satellite campus at the time and every spare um you know square meter of room um and on that campus was made available for people who literally had to um you know, take refuge uh, from um, uh, the central city, from their mail room to to, to everything else, um, and uh, so uh, and th and that whole thing went on for about you know three weeks until they could very hastily construct an overland uh, power line along a railway track, uh, you know, into the city, and um, until it was fully resolved, uh, it was 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 several years um, until they had a new tunnel with new cables uh, built into yeah. the city. It, 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 the effect can be quite substantial. It can be quite long-lasting, especially when you get into um, a situation where you have power lines blowing up. And this is, again, where having something that's overhead is easier to fix because it's accessible than something that you have below ground. If you have a yeah. below ground power line, um, these aren't just wires. Um, these are actually wires that sit in an uh, in a pressurized inert gas environment, and they need to be pressurized in order to operate. So, um, and, and just repressurizing those and even just getting enough of them and laying them and, um, you know, all of that, that took, that took a long time to get right. <laughs> yeah, but I, I would be worried that the resiliency of a supply chain for things like replacement transformers and transformer fluids and cables of this spec would be a significant problem. I mean, Ever Given kind of made us just a little bit sensitive to the resilience of supply chains. Yes, very much, very much so. I mean, we saw this, in fact, firsthand earlier in the year with uh, Cyclone Gabrielle in, in New Zealand, where, in fact, both power and communications uh, were lost to large parts of the New, Ze New Zealand North Island, uh, especially the Hawke's Bay and, and, and Northland. So Hawke's Bay is the area sort of between Napier and Lisbon and up, up to East Cape. And uh, where basically the same bridges that were carrying, you know, power, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, backhaul fibre, 
uh, you know, got washed away and roads got washed away. And so we ended up in a situation where the civil defense people didn't realize how important communication was. And uh, so when the local uh, the, the local mobile networks, for example, wanted to go and recommission cell sites that had been disconnected, uh, you know, both from power and from backhaul uh, connectivity. They were met with civil defense officials uh, who basically didn't realize that that their radios, which in, in those areas are literally just mobile phones, didn't work because these people were wanting to restore the sites that made them work. And um, so they ended up in a situation where, you know, once that that, that, that sort of had been realized uh, that a lot of helicopter capacity that would have been needed for search and rescue was actually needed not only to fly people to, uh, to cell phone sites, remote cell phone sites, in order to start them back up again and to fly generators into those sites because they'd run out of battery power because that, that their mains got disconnected. But also they then had to, in, in, the, in the following days, they had to go and actually refuel these sites by helicopter because the, the, the generators didn't last that long either. And so a lot of helicopter capacity was tied down um, you know, by the need to keep the communication network going because it didn't have the power resiliency that it should have had. And so there's a lot of there's, there's been a lot of debate around this um, in the last few months and um, a lot of finger pointing from you know, various parties involved. Um, as to, uh, you know, who's to blame and, you know, what we might do in order to uh, avoid a repeat. But then, you know, people suddenly realize, and again, talking supply chains here, that um, when you don't have communication, one of the things, for example, that uh, disappears is your ability to make electronic payments. Now, you know, electronic payments aren't just internet banking transactions. They're also um, point of sale uh, things. And in New Zealand, for example, very few people still use cash. So we had the situation where people would uh, go to their local building supply store and say, hey, you know, we need a few pieces of wood in order to, you know, fix things around the house or the farm that got damaged by the floods. And the building supply store said, well, we're terribly sorry, we can't sell you anything because you haven't got cash and we can't take electronic payments and supermarkets couldn't take electronic payments and everything depended on this and everything then started interlocking. And that's that, that's really what you've been, been, been you know, hinting at, uh, you know, there, George, because it's... Um, you know, it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, tends to make life really, really difficult if you haven't planned for it in advance. And this is where sort of small effects sometimes can sort of mushroom a little bit. Yeah. Yes, I do think. It's, it's, uh, people don't realize that. And that's why I, I mean, people ask me about, oh, what's going to happen here and there, the radio communication. But it's a combination of stuff that makes uh, things weird. It's not just uh, the internet going down or just it, it is all the service connected to it. And that's actually a bit of the, uh, the worry is that now we are way more connected than how many years ago and things will hit harder than even if it, I mean, it, it will actually hit harder. So that's if you don't indeed don't have to prepare for it. I wonder if we can make one of these solar cycles line up with the 2038 Unix time field problem and have Y2K combined with... No, I don't think that would be a sensible idea. So, Yarp, how when you say we get notice... It's it's days, it's weeks, it's hours. 
its days for the the heavy ions hitting the earth. But you see, you've got a, a, a mass uh, explosion event. Um, that's what you easily see in the sun. These things are big. You know, these are really big. And uh, that's the couple of satellites continuously watching the sun. So is one, stereo is another one, uh, the SDO is another one, and the people see that immediately. And what you also see is uh, that here uh, uh, is the North American uh, atmosphere. The NOAA satellites are continuously measuring uh, X-rays and other stuff, and these go very fast, that's seconds, so they see that something's coming. And so, and then often you can see whether or not, uh, which direction it takes, because it, we, these are bundles and it's not necessary that everything around them will be touched. There was a big, uh, CME about a couple of weeks ago, but it went in the direction of Mars. So people hardly noticed except on some uh, radio uh, fallouts and uh, so we, and you see that more or less coming. Now the one what you see is that this is also generated by sunspots or in the close neighborhood of sunspots and you see these are coming as well. these are continuously being watched and when they uh, turn from the back of the sun to the front it's always hmm, which way will the sunstorm go from the uh, sunspot? So that's what people can do. This uh, actually, for people interested, is sunweather.com, which is a site and which continuously uh, tells you about this and uh, also about the rollers and things like that. There are multiple sites on, you can actually find on, on the web. Which deal with this, and uh, so that's. Uh, if you want more information, there's a wealth of information of uh, how these things happen. And, and this another thing is that the one of the things that the movements of ions here happens has an influence on how well the GPS signals uh, will work, and so these are continuously measured as well. And, uh, you can, and, uh, <coughs> so there's a lot more measurements going on than you think. Actually, the Japanese just published a paper that they could see from, uh, the behavior of the ionosphere and the GPS when North Korea is launching yet another rocket. I mean, this thing, that's how close they can actually watching this stuff. So if there is readings of the series going on, people will notice. The only thing is that you don't want is what Ulrich uh, uh, thought that when the media gets hold on it and start to panic and make stuff worse. That. So there is, of course, the other potential source of disruption to the telecommunications network, which Ulrich has gently reminded me about, which is not solar in origin. 
but indeed uses pretty much the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the same effect, and these are nuclear electromagnetic pulses. And uh, those are an effect that was, uh, that was observed quite widely uh, during the nuclear uh, tests, especially in the Pacific, um, in the 1950s and 1960s, and you know, even you know, uh, you know, into later deca decades. And so the idea there is that you basically um, you know, have, a, have a nuclear bomb and uh, you make it go off. And um, that causes a very, very strong electromagnetic pulse. Um, and the effects there are quite similar to what you'd normally expect in a solar storm and, and a quite bad one. And so people were starting to notice that, for example, teletypes were uh, you know, starting to play up and, um, and uh, telegraph equipment and telephone equipment was getting fried, you know, even hundreds or uh, you know, even thousands of kilometers away from those uh, specific um, uh, test sites, um, and um, uh, you know, up to the point where people sort of started speculating that um, this might be used as a weapon against um, you know grids, um, you know, worldwide, and you know, rather than nuking people, um, you know, send the weapon into space and uh, nuke their uh, and uh, nemp their infrastructure. So nemp and nuclear electromagnetic pulses—that's the uh, abbreviation for it. Um, and so um, uh, what happened in response to this is that a lot of the militaries around the planet uh, who realized that they were using electronics, they started hardening their electronics against nuclear electromagnetic uh, pulse interference. And, you know, this is obviously something that's, uh, you know, still being done. Um, but at the same time, the question is, you know, how susceptible, uh, you know, would civilian infrastructure be? And, you know, again, we're probably ending up at, uh, you, know, uh, you know, at the power grid is the most uh, uh, most vulnerable, you know, piece of equipment there. And, uh, um, you know, of course, you know, these days, uh, you know, the specter of nuclear war isn't, you know, isn't as far away anymore as it was maybe, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, um, again, what sort of made us more resilient against space weather in the last few decades is also what's making us a bit more resilient against this sort of thing. Although, you know, obviously, if it were to happen, it would probably be quite a substantial escalation, uh, you know, on the international, uh, you know, scale. And um, um, I think we might have other problems to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's all very interesting. Um, yeah, I was a little, the whole optical thing was a little confusing for a minute there. But yeah, it's all very interesting. And I think it is something that particularly, I think where we started this, George, which is the low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, high Earth orbit or geosync stuff are really probably where we're going to see a lot of the impact for the immediate future. That would be my guess of anything like this. And then, you know, secondarily, it's going to be in power lines. And then perhaps, I mean, I, again, I still see, you know, in-building wiring is still a problem in some cases, I would think, because you still get like radio signals still pass through or high voltage or uh, wireless signals can still pass through walls and stuff. So but that's very long. Yeah. Yeah, you you generally need very very long wires in order to pick up yeah. suf sufficient voltage to cause to cause a problem, uh, and typically Watson buildings you know won't won't be quite long enough in order to cause you serious issues because I mean with buildings you have other you know sources of uh, pulses as well um, lightning for example. 
uh, is a very common one. And uh, most systems are designed around, uh, you know, at least some level of resilience against that. And when that said, if you if, if your building gets hit by lightning, chances are that there will be damage um, to electronic equipment in, in, inside the building. I mean, the very building I'm sitting in here in the uh, at the moment has been hit by lightning. The neighboring buildings here have been hit by lightning because it, uh, it's at the top of a hill and there's been damage in every single incident, despite the well, fact that... Well, Ulrich, you're on the lowest bandwidth. Coincidence? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that, that's got that's got other reasons, <laughs> uh, which have more to do with German telecoms regulations uh, than and um, and administrative district boundaries than anything else. <laughs> but uh, that's a longer story. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jaap, Ulrich, Ross, thank you very much. That was really fascinating. Thanks for having us, George. I hope we shed some light on uh, what's happening. And, turn, and one of the points is we, we don't get into panic mode for this because that's what people tend to do. And uh, if you see, uh, it's every, last time we were reading uh, the, the Sun uh, Spot Magazine, you saw the the BBC had it on the news. There were a couple of news outlets making a lot of noise about it, and without actually explaining what's happening. So you have to watch that, especially. I, I uh, think I think we're probably more in be alert but not alarmed. But right. the potential the potential lies there for an event mm. to be larger than we planned for, and the consequence lies there for it to be more widespread than we thought. Perhaps we should be more prepared than concerned. Mm. That's, a, that's a very, very important point. I mean, you know, resilience is something that you need to plan for and that you need to invest in and um, that you need to design into the systems that you build. I mean, you know, going back to the Cyclone Gabrielle thing for a moment, um, there was actually one particular telecoms provider in New Zealand that was almost unaffected in the area by, by any of this, except that they weren't a consumer provider. And this is the former um, uh, Broadcasting New Zealand um um, uh, BCNZ uh, successor Cordia, and they're basically a backhaul inter, uh, internet service provider, and they use mostly wireless um, uh, connections between hillsides. And they were originally building these hillsides in order to keep the Radio New Zealand broadcasting network. Uh, working, and that's always been the emergency broadcaster for New Zealand. And uh, so they've they built sites that you can literally run for months completely uh, autonomously and unattended, and they've been doing this for decades. And they had no significant outages in the entire area because they they were basically sitting on a network that was designed to deal with events like this. And um, everybody else was basically just putting, you know, consumer-grade vulnerable stuff in that relied on the local um, uh, mains power to come in almost continuously. And that was designed for only sort of small outages like, you know, car running into power pole type stuff where, you know, you're back up and running, you know, eight hours later. Um, and uh, so if you plan for it, if you design for it, and yes, it does cost a little bit more under some circumstances, uh, circumstances at least. And in other cases, it's just a matter of, you know, keeping parts diverse and having one cable running this way and the other, you know, cable, you know, running, running a completely different route um, to give you resiliency. And stuff like that, 
you know, when 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 you put this in at the design phase, um, then that makes a grip, uh, you know, a communications grid, a power grid, much much more resilient. And this is the sort of solutions that we really need to start looking for. It's not the solutions, um, you know, along the lines of, oh, you know, we're going to panic with the space weather, how we're going to all put a tinfoil hat on, you know, on top of Mother Earth. This is not going to work, right? Uh, we need to make sure that uh, we design for. Uh, resiliency and that we also uh, have a look at what the knock-on effects are where where it hits the supply chains and uh, where that uh, where, where that causes trouble further downstream and that's clearly something that uh, that New Zealand's just learned very very hard as a lesson and very publicly so. Mm-hmm.